Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. I'm your host, Jonah Saller, and joining me today is Catholic apologist Eric Ybarra. Um, I'm really grateful to have him on. Um, he's written a number of books. He's written a book called Melchizedek in the Last Supper, Biblical and Patristic Evidence for the Sacrifice of the Mass. He's written another book called The Filioque, Revisiting the Doctrinal Debate Between Catholics and Orthodox, and the book we're going to be discussing today is his most recent called The Just Shall Live by Faith, Resolving the Catholic-Protestant Debate on Justification for Paul's Epistle to the Romans. So Eric, thank you so much for coming on. It's a real honor to be uh, talking with you. And for those who don't know you, uh, would you just be able to give a brief introduction? Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Jonah, for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Um, so, uh I am a, uh, I, I host a website, ericibarra.org. Uh, since about 2013, I've been engaging with uh, Orthodox and Protestants in dialogue on the internet. I eventually made my own website, and I've been posting since around 2015. Uh, I have participated in the startup and progression of a well-known YouTube channel now called Reason and Theology. Um, although I was always just a returning guest, everyone's, everyone seems to think I was uh, uh, part and parcel with the production itself. Uh, Michael was just gracious enough to have me on. That's Michael Lofton, the the, the owner and host. Um, so he kind of he kind of got me my name out there for me. So I was very privileged to uh, participate in that project. Um, but uh, yeah, so I. I focus a lot on uh, issues related to uh, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, but I'm, I'm also a former Anglican. Um, I was uh, Anglo-Catholic, part of the uh, continuum, although I didn't make my, I didn't make many rounds to different corners because I, um, it just can get kind of confusing, but uh, I was part of the APA on the east side of the U.S. Um, under Bishop Grundorf and, uh, I have a, a large affection for the English tradition. Um, I'm actually part of the Ang Anglican Ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter. Um, so uh, we we retain, um, I actually still pray the Book of Common Prayer. My whole family does. Each one of us has a, a BCP in our hands at night um, until we can afford the uh, the Ordinariate's version, uh, which is expensive. <laughs> I, I have to have one in each one of my kids' hands. So it's going to be like, I don't know, 600 bucks. <laughs> so yeah, that's the brief intro to me. And uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the issue of justification by faith with Protestants and, and various other issues. Wonderful. Yeah. And you have a YouTube channel too, uh, under yeah. your name. Is that correct? Yeah, it's under my name. Uh, it's classical Christian thought on the logo, but a logo, but I just, uh, I have my name there because it's, it seems as though when I had it as classical Christian thought, nobody found it ever. Got but it. now that I have my name there, everybody's finding it, so I just go with that. Okay, we'll put that down in the description below, too, for people to check out. Um, so as we kind of get into the discussion of your book, The Just Shall Live by Faith, I can you just give kind of an overview of the thesis? What is the purpose of this book? What are you trying to do with it? Yeah, uh, so, you know, everyone knows now, we're going on five centuries that uh, this, the, su the subject of justification is, is a dividing point between Catholics and Protestants. There's been many ecumenical dialogues that have removed a lot of the barriers 
but there still seems to be a recurring barrier uh, for at least most conservative thinking Protestants. Those those Protestant scholars and communities that have come to a, a an agreement with Catholics, um, they tend to it, it's it's rather recent and their decisions have been questioned a lot by the Protestant community. So I still think that this issue deserves to be looked at. Um, and so if we're talking about the doctrine of justification between Catholics and Protestants, we're talking about a New Testament issue. And if we're going to get further specific than that, we're talking about a Pauline issue. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and if we're going to get even more minute than that, it's going to be the locus classicus, which is the epistle to the Romans. Now, of course, you've got the epistle to Galatia, Philippi, and Corinth that serve as, uh, you know, reflections and, and further moonlight on the sun. But uh, it seems as though the, the in the 16th century, 17th century, uh, the commentaries abounded on Romans and Galatians, but more so Romans. So my book is structured off of going through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans and basically just looking at the text and trying to see if a, a native exegesis, as far as best as I can provide um, as a limited person, whether it exhibits something closer to what the Protestants have taught uh, since their confessions, um, Book of Concord, Westminster, London Baptist Confession, 39 Articles, um, or if Paul's message is something closer to the Catholic view um, of justification. So that's really what the book is about. Um, and, and it kind of wraps up at the end um, with a brief conclusion, basically um, saying that, you know, not only am I convinced, but I think that I provided the case for a preferability towards the more historic uh, Catholic Orthodox view um, on the matter. But I don't think a Protestant necessarily has to disagree with me. I think some some Protestants are are definitely seeing these things, especially of late. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I would be one of those Protestants that, that would tend to agree with much of what you've said. Yeah. Um, it, it really seems to me that the, the fundamental disagreement comes down to what is the formal cause of justification? And that's yeah. historically what it's been. And I think one of the problems in a lot of these dialogues is Protestants, um, they, they tend to reduce the Catholic position to Catholics teach justification by faith and works, yeah. as though it's somehow faith plus our merits, plus what we're doing to earn this initial justification, to earn a right standing before God. Yeah. And what's unfortunate about that is both Catholics and Protestants can equally confess that the meritorious cause of our justification is Christ's death and resurrection period. Um, so the question isn't how do we come into being able to merit this justification? The question is how is justification applied to us? Um, is it the imputation of Christ's righteousness or is it something else? And so in reading your book, you, you, you discuss um, in the first chapter, uh, first couple chapters, you really talk about this idea of Romans 1.17, where um, from faith for faith is how you translate it. Yeah. And kind of the implications of this with uh, the righteousness of God and kind of go into the Habakkian uh, understanding, too, of 
faith as this active obedience, this this faithfulness. And so can I'd love to spend some time there just kind of dissecting what is the righteousness of God? Um, what how is this applied to us? What what is Paul's use of Habakkuk in in Romans one? Yeah, that's such a uh, it's such a a good question, and it's really uh, it's near to my heart because um, I started studying these issues around two thousand five, and. I spent a good solid six years of just studying justification. Mm. Um, and I, I, I was in and out of seminaries, scanning chapters from journals and books. Uh, I was having phone conversations with prestigious scholars all over the world, really. Emails, letters going back and forth. I spoke to some really, really intelligent uh, persons at that point, my I was really into uh, the opponents of the new perspective on Paul. As you, you probably heard of that, but yeah. um, so you know, D. A. Carson, Douglas Moo, P. T. O'Brien, Mark Seyfried, West, Stephen Westerholm. Um, I didn't really find like apologists, even even as a even as a Reformed Baptist at the time. I didn't really uh, find uh, like the James White exegesis of Romans to be very convincing. Um, but I was still trying to maintain my London Baptist Confession, which is clearly uh, the classical Reformed doctrine. Right. Um, but righteousness of God, that phrase, it, it just, it was, I could I could recite it in my head over and over um, in my sleep for how many years I, I put into studying that phrase. Um, but, you know, I I've come out from studying the, the the more scholarly updated view, which if you read commentaries today, they're gonna almost it's it's the majority of modern scholars. Uh, they'll tell you that it means like an activity, a saving activity of God, hmm. according to like the Isaiahic and the Psalmic understanding of God's justice coming to deliver and redeem His people. That's possible. I don't want to exclude that. But I, I come back down to the Augustinian view, which was, you know, kind of carried through uh, many of the church fathers. Uh, it's taken up by Aquinas and the scholastic tradition, and then finally at the Council of Trent, which is the righteousness of God is basically it's, it's God's own preparation for us. To meet his standards that he mm. gives that he gives to us, you know, as mm. a gift, as a gift, and and so it, it it's not just like a bag of good deeds that that is waiting for us somewhere that we somehow get. No, it, it encompasses the the first the cleansing of a sinner, right, the forgiveness of sins, but also the the reordering of the soul unto God because what we lost in the fall of man with Adam is that harmony between you know right. God is God as the supreme ruler he's the the ultimate end of man and then the mind or the intellect being subject to God and then the body really the pinnacle the body being subject to the intellect which is subject to God that harmony was was broken 
with um, the sin of our origin, the, with, with uh, original sin. Well, the righteousness of God is basically God taking us and, and fixing the situation by his mercy. Right. So elaborate on what, what, what you mean by fix, fixing the situation, because a Protestant, for example, could agree to that in theory. They would say, yeah, God does fix the problem by imputing the righteousness of Christ to us and then by sanctifying us as two equally important but separate distinct uh, categories. And so in what sense is the righteousness of God in the Catholic Orthodox understanding um, better? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the story of Israel typifies the story of the world. I, I think the scholarship has been pretty adamant on that for many, many centuries. But, um, and so when we see Israel's failure under the law of Moses, we're just seeing a longer extension of what happened in the garden with Adam. And the promise of renewal or the promise of of redemption to to the to the Israelites was a new covenant, a new covenant that would take care of two things. Um, number one, the knowledge of God, that people would come to know God through the heart, and then we don't mean the muscle here, okay? The heart of man being uh, completely changed, and God would give us a new heart, a heart of flesh. Right? That's what this, uh, Ezekiel 36 tells us. And that God, as a consequence to that, God will, God will not remember any of their sins. And so you've got this dual uh, or this twin aspect of renewal, restoration of the, of the interior person. Um, the heart is, that's what's referring to. And the, the consequent, which is the remission of sins. So that is uh, the first aspect is we would say that what Paul's aiming at with the word dikaiosune is not an external alienated reality of, you know, a, a, an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus or, you know, some sort of mere pardon. The righteousness of God definitely includes the first and foremost positively the rectification of man's uh fall and so that's that's the first thing that we get in baptism is that we get the soul being fixed in such a way that now we're 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 brought to friendship with god mm -hmm. so there's that the alienation that was caused by sin is removed, and that alienation is not just an external reality that's that can be taken care of in the legal books, but it has to be that the alienation in our mind and in our heart has to be removed. And so justification, what Paul's talking about with the dikaya, the dik word group in his letters, is an internal reality, hmm. um, first and foremost. And then negatively, it's the remission of sins. We see that dynamism in Romans four, where Paul seems to he he seems to get two different, totally different examples. He gets Abraham who believes God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham's not Abraham's not asking for forgiveness. He's not on his knees asking for mercy and forgiveness. 
but he's justified by his faith. And then Paul then goes to Psalm 32, which does talk about the man who is uh, repentant. So justification has to have these positive and, and, and negative aspects where there's something God-pleasing that God puts into us. In this case, it was Abraham. And we know that because in elsewhere in, in Paul's letters, like in Galatians 4, uh, it contrasts Abraham's attempt to be to procure the promise through works in Hagar, right? And then the his, his you know God's performance through Isaac, and it's supposed to symbol symbolize the the Sinaitic and the New Jerusalemic um, imageries of contrasting the old and the new covenants, mm. and. So the faith of Abraham is God's doing. You know, right. we get this also like in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. The Corinthians think that they could boast that one, one particular group might be a little bit more intelligent on the faith than the others. And Paul's like, you've all received this. How can you be boasting about it? Um, so Abraham received the gift of faith. And that faith gave him a God-pleasing orientation. And that's that's the positive aspect of what's going on in Genesis 15. Negatively, it's also the same thing as being forgiven for your sin, because Paul then says, just as David speaks of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So that right there, that would differentiate the Protestant view and the Catholic view, is that the Protestant the Protestant does not see anything internal in the mechanic of justification um, and secondly if they were going if, if they were going to employ the dikaiosune word of Romans to encompass both justification and sanctification I think it runs into some exegetical difficulties sort of um, eisegetical distinctions that mm -hmm. Paul is not working with. But it's possible. I mean, a Protestant can literally say the righteous, the gift of righteousness is both the righteousness of Jesus and the subsequent progressive righteousness that is in us. Right. But that does seem like a, a little bit of a strained eisegetical move. But I don't want to take it away from Protestants altogether, but I would say it's not very convincing. Sure, yeah. So one of the things that you you said in your book that I wanted to make sure I touched on, because I've talked to some Protestants about this particular passage, and there's been the suggestion that this is a straw man, and I'll yeah. find it out. But you had said uh, on page 32, for Protestants, faith unto justification in terms of its function is essentially empty, worthless, devoid of contributing value and totally opposite from something considered worthy of being counted as a God-pleasing virtue in the assessment of an individual for salvation. Now, in the whole scheme of Protestant soteriology, this faith is necessarily associated with repentance, conversion, and good works, even passionately so. Nevertheless, when the Protestant explains why that, is, why that faith is justifying, it is not traced to something about faith that rectifies or sanctifies the believer, but is simply an instrument to receive and alien righteousness. Yeah. So the Protestants that I've talked to that have been frustrated by this quote seem to be frustrated over the indication that faith in terms of its function is essentially empty, worthless, or devoid 
based on the fact that that faith, what it is receiving, the, therefore the imputation of Christ's righteousness, is full of as much value as possible. And another thing, too, that ties into kind of um, this whole thing is, I think a lot of Protestants, their fear in saying that faith itself has some sort of God-pleasing virtue associated with it is that God's standard for righteousness is so high, how could something like faith possibly satisfy that standard? Sure. And so there's the resistance to that based on that implication, and there's also the resistance to calling faith empty and worthless when what it's receiving is so great uh, a thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So the uh, that uh, what I'm trying to say there is that it's it should be conceded, like I said in the quote, that a Protestant definition of saving faith is definitely inclusive with a sinner's being made alive from the dead. So I mean, that's in most Reformed theology. In fact, I would say. Pretty much all of Reformed theology sees regeneration preceding faith. Right. So right. Then, let, let, let's let's. <laughs> I mean, they don't even believe you can have faith until you're 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 basically regenerated, and um, so it's definitely saving faith is definitely something that is um, characteristic of somebody who's being converted to God. They love God with with you know they 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 love God above all things, they believe that faith is part of the infusion that orders us to holiness. The whole purpose of faith right. is to do good works, right? But if we're kind of looking at this in terms of like a, an engine, the faith part, okay, does not have any contributing effect that produces the righteousness that justifies us. It's almost like a reservoir that's just open to receive. Sure. And so the word worthless there is not meant to be derogatory. It's actually meant to be extremely clarifying. Because if faith were to have some sort of worth in the, in the dynamic of receiving righteousness... Um, then, then it kind of, uh, then it kind of goes into a, a more of like a Catholic position where faith itself has a formal cause. You know, it's faith formed by love has a formal cause of justification. Whereas the only kind of cause that Protestants want is a receptive or an instrumental cause. So okay. when you have an instrumental cause, the worth of it is not in terms of uh, contributing value to get a return, right? Whereas in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church, we would say that the faith itself is pleasing to God so that God looks upon the faith and says, this is a pleasing activity or a pleasing virtue inside the human, and I will consider that righteousness, right? Whereas the Protestant does the Protestant has to maintain a very strict demarcation between the saving righteousness and the saving faith. The righteousness is in Christ. It's, it's, you got to zip it up in Christ and shut it. It's sealed outside of us. Okay, The faith is simply opening up the hand to receive that. 
Right. And so it's true that Protestant reformed and Protestant thinking on saving faith is, is necessarily tied into this, this extreme renewal of a person to love God, turn away from sin, have a life of prayer, obtain the means of grace, uh, all these things, experience martyrdom. I mean, all those things in, in reformed theology are, they're, 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 they're connected to faith necessarily. However, in this interchange between faith and the righteousness that justifies us, the faith is, does not have any value to contribute. It only has value to take in. And, and, and so that's what I'm trying to say in that yes. quote. I know it could be kind of difficult to understand because, number one, the word worthless almost sounds like I'm trying to say that it's uh, it, it doesn't really have any import you know, in right. relationship to the overall gift of justification of salvation. Right. Um, but I, I just want to make that mechanically clear that uh, the Catholic and Orthodox perspective is the one that's saying that, that faith is a God pleasing orientation in this case. Um, and because of that, God justifies, you know, his own gift in us. You know, he right. gives us the gift of faith and he justifies us based off of number one, the propitiatory um, remission of sins, and then also the soul being rectified through its um, it, through its being reordered to, to 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 number one believe God, but number two to desire God through the will, right. you know, and that's Romans eight. Romans eight: the the, the mind of the flesh does not even it's not subject to God. Okay, well, not being subject to God is not an evil deed yet. It, it's an inner disposition. Hmm. Well, being subject to God is also not a, a work yet. It's just a disposition. So I would still maintain that even the infusion of justice into us is not a work. It's, right. not, it's not an activity that we do. It's a disposition that God gives us, kind of like the disposition that a, an unbaptized infant has. Um, towards towards the the flesh, you know, right. um, the baby hasn't done any evil deeds, but it's still it's still in, in a sense evil in the eyes of God, and and when I, I'm talking about scholastic meaning of evil here, I don't I'm yeah. not advocating that we should go around looking at our kids like they're evil, but right. they certainly lack the goodness of that God intended for humanity. Yeah. So that's that's what I would say about that issue. Um, I forgot the second one. You had brought up a second point. Yeah, let me think really quick. I think I think that pretty much covered where I was going with it. I think the main thing awesome. was just, uh, yeah, that about covers it. Uh, kind of going from here, um, I thought you made a really good point in the book when you talked about the necessity of both the the intellect and the will being united in in this act of faith that produces justification that that faith on its own just having the intellect it's not it's not virtuous on its own it needs to have the the will formed by charity in order to inform that intellectual faith to bring it into something that really is supernatural um, and so i i want you to just elaborate a little bit on the importance of that but i also just want to ask too um I think Protestants, and, and this is this is a concern I share, 
Protestants want to, um, they want to maintain the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And I think the primary reason that they that they hold on to that so much, despite the fact that I do believe there's not a strong exegetical case that can be made for it, is because they want to maintain the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And they don't want to place any emphasis that we in some sense can make ourselves holy. And so with this idea that the will and the intellect are being joined to produce something that is actually pleasing from God, from God to God, um, how, how does that, how does God looking at something inherent to us, even if he's gifted it, not neglect Christ? How, how does this actually elevate Christ in the Catholic understanding? Yes, this is a great, great point. Um, so it goes back to, you know, the patristic dictum, you know, God became a man so that man might become God. And I know that, you know, uh, in Reformed theology, um, th this has there, there, there has been an openness traditionally to, um, you know, salvation being understood in this deify, deiform uh, structure. But the whole purpose of the incarnation is to make us conformed to the image of Christ. Hmm. And so I don't know any Reformed theologian from calvin forward i don't know any lutheran scholar from luther forward that would say that the final or the progressive conformation of our being to the son of god is somehow ultimately thanks to us yeah. or even partially thanks to us um i mean for this is I bring this up in the introduction that it, Paul's major motif is new creation that that future life that Isaiah Jeremiah Ezekiel talked about where you know uh, there's a new heavens and a new earth a new covenant a new heart a new people new life all of that um, has broken into the present is broken into the here and now through the Holy Spirit. And so anything that we do um, with the Holy, with the gift of the Holy Spirit is can't ever come back to us as if, okay, you're ultimately the reason why this is the case. You know? Otherwise, we destroy so much of what Paul's saying. Because then we'd have to say, well, we're justified by grace, but then sanctified by struggle or sanctified by our works. Right. And no Protestant, no reform uh, Protestant says that they just know that our sanctification has to be thanks to God as well. And then, but, but, you know, then we get into the issue of synergism, you know, Philippians one, where it is God who is in us working to do, you know, working in us both to will and mm -hmm. to do, but, Catholics have always accepted that uh, that belief system. We just believe that our part is extremely genuine, just as much as God's part is extremely genuine. Right. Um, so I think you could go to Romans 2, for example, where Paul contrasts the circumcised man who mm -hmm. does not fulfill the, the law of God, and then you've got the uncircumcised man who keeps or he fulfills the precepts of the law, um, and, and so sometimes, you know, 
Protestants can read this and say, oh, Paul's still maintaining this hypothetical. But then he goes, then, then he immediately says right after in verse 28 and 29 of Romans 2, for the Jew, for the true Jew is not one who is outwardly in the flesh, but inwardly, mm-hmm. whose, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So in Paul's mind, that inward holiness is it, it doesn't allow for the praise of man. It doesn't allow for the boasting of man. Um, so f- we have to think in terms of how Paul understands grace and gift. Yeah. Because for him, uh, the human agency that that characterizes New Covenant obedience, Christian obedience, Christian suffering, um, the hard labor that we do through good works— Romans 6, he calls it the slavery to righteousness. For Paul, that's still under grace. Right. Romans 6, 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law but under grace. That, that's logically questionable. I thought if I'm under grace, that means that I'm going to be, um, it, it's really not going to really matter. I can kind of mess it up and still be all right. Right. Well, for Paul, being under grace actually means this ironic twist where, no, you, you've you actually been made new. And if you don't pay attention and take care of what you've been given, Romans 8, if you, buy, if you do not put to, to death the deeds of the flesh by the Holy Spirit, right. you will die. So, yeah. so Paul's death. Paul's understanding of grace does not exclude human agency. It involves human agency. And even through our human agency, we can't, like, at the end, put our thumbs under our overall straps and say, oh, look at, you know, yeah, uh, um, justification was free. Adoption was free. But sanctification, ah, that's me, you know. Right. That right. that's not how Paul thinks, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I would just say. I would just say it, it, this is something that all Reformed scholars, Protestant scholars, already know. We're right. just asking them to just apply that to um, the Catholic consideration consistently. Yeah, yeah. I think it was uh, Saint John Henry Newman who had a quote where he said, um, in in arguing against this idea of a purely forensic imputation of justification, he said. Are we to are we to say that Christ isn't our sanctification because we have a role to play? Like, right? Oh, that's, it yeah, doesn't that, make that's, sense. That's, um, and I think that that's a really good point. If we're going to say that we play a role in sanctification, we need to also recognize that we do play a role in the sense that God can look upon us and see true righteousness and, and declare it to be such, um, based upon His own work within us. Um, yeah. And one of the critiques that I've often um, made about the Protestant understanding of justification is that I think it's insufficiently Trinitarian. I think the Holy Spirit is neglected in the sense that you have the Father who declares us to be righteous. You have the Son to whom uh, his righteousness is credited to us. And the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit comes in during sanctification, but not, it seems to me that a robust justification would understand that the Father's declaration based upon the merits of the Son is truly enacted in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And it seems that that's the only way you can truly have a, a, um, 
a really robust understanding of justification in a Trinitarian lens. Uh, do you that's, have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, that that that's that's a, a remarkable point um, because and, and it comes up in Paul too uh, in 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 First Corinthians chapter six. Um, he he details the the historical behavior of the Corinthians that they were once engaged in the the life of the flesh, um, you know, thieve, you know, uh, that the, there was fornication and, and and some other things that the Corinthians. And then he says, "But you were washed." First Corinthians six ten and eleven, you were washed, you were um, sanctified. And you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yeah. So this is kind of where that issue now, you know, kind of brings us back to that issue about faith being worthless and justification being kind of put off into this distant category of salvation. Um, but washing, sanctifying, and justifying all seem to be words that can describe the transition from the Corinthians' former life to their new life. Yes. And it involves the spirit, like you just said. So I think your point is remarkable. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Um, I, I want to spend some time talking about just imputation in general and getting kind of into the meat of the text, and specifically Romans chapter 4. That's sure. where Protestants will spend a lot of time to try to show that imputation is there. And I, I did want to briefly read the two quotes you included from your book from Protestant scholars that I just want people to think about um, as we talk about this, because I think that it, it, it attests to the fact that Protestants who, who have the authority as sola scriptura and who point to scripture as being the sole infallible authority and have a doctrine of justification built upon this idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, if scripture cannot explicitly demonstrate that, in the very least, I think we need to examine um, whether or not it should be held as a dogmatic thing within Protestantism. Um, so I just wanted to read from D.A. Carson. You quote, he says, no text of the New Testament explicitly says that Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. And then from uh, Douglas Moo, you quote, I'm not convinced that any New Testament text on its own leads to the doctrine of imputation of the righteousness of Christ. I think that these are pretty significant scholars that have done some of the best New Testament theology um, in Protestantism. And so for them to admit something like that, I would just encourage those listening, those watching, to, to at least open your mind to the possibility that we need to go back to the text and look at these things and say, is this is this what Paul's saying? Yeah, I think that that's um, it, it. You know, my my intention in citing Carson and Moo, um, who who were tremendously helpful to me when I was a Protestant, and still are, they're still helpful to me because I think they're just. They're, they're, they have a unique gift. Um, yeah. And uh, Douglas Moo's recent book on the biblical theology of Paul and his letters, it just says another just magnum opus, I think, of his, mm. of his scholarship. But what these guys are telling us here is that the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us 
um, as the as the formal cause of justification, or you know, in the 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 you know the that's the grounds, you know, as that's what Protestants usually try to say to kind of the non-Aristotelian thinking type will just say the grounds of justification is the active and passive obedience of Christ. What these guys are saying is that even if this doctrine is true, it's a construction built off of built off of blocks that are not explicit about it. So you could compare this to, you know, um, other doctrines that we might hold dogmatic, like Trinity. Although if you were to talk to some Protestants, they, it, it, it's, it's funny because sometimes you'll be speaking with a very good-hearted, well, uh, you know, a tender-hearted Protestant who's speaking in good faith. And he'll, he'll say, oh, the Trinity is not an example of the development of doctrine because it's so clear in Scripture. But then if it's the conversation changes to like something like this, where, well, the doctrine of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us is not clear in Scripture, then they'll say, yeah, but the Trinity's not clear in Scripture either. <laughs> but it's still dogmatic. Well, we got to pick which one it is. I think, I think most conservative Protestants think they can get the Trinity out of Scripture. Um, but I, I would just say that the doctrine of imputation, Carson and Mu are telling us that it's not explicit in the new, it's not explicit in the Bible. So what 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 goal do I have in bringing that out? I think it's simply there to just make the Protestant reader consider. Okay, I'm not asking him to all of a sudden say, "Okay, imputation is not a biblical doctrine." No, that's not what I'm asking. But what I am saying is, if it's not explicit. And the the viewpoint that has been had by a lot of the like the Puritans, you know, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, although Jonathan Edwards is a unique case, um, but you know, all these 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 uh, major thinkers in the past, John Bunyan, some of these you know spiritual writers who made who made it seem like this was the crux of the of the gospel, like this is the gospel. Yeah. It is the righteousness of Jesus given to us by faith alone, by imputation alone, completely alien to us. Um, it should at least make one uh, sort of draw back from that kind of yes. stern confidence because these guys are part of your tradition. They're anybody who says D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo in a reformed conference even a protestant evangelical conference they're going to say oh yeah those guys are top dogs yeah and they're saying that look it, it's not there explicitly so it just it just means to hey maybe the maybe what we used to think was so clear is not really as clear as we thought it was that's right. it yeah yeah and in the very least that should just cause us to take a step back from being super heavy-handed with the dogmatic understanding, in the least. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So going to Romans 4, um, we read that um, Abraham's faith is counted or credited to him as righteousness. And to me, that verse basically says exactly what's going on. The faith is counted to him as righteousness. Um, so... 
is this is is the doctrine of imputation implied in this text at all in your opinion um or, or what what exactly is paul trying to point out about uh abraham and specifically he uses abraham and then uses david directly after what is the significance of the the interchange between yeah. The yeah well what i could say is this um if if it was my goal and this is kind of speculative here okay this is a little brief conjecture before i get to that answer um if it was my goal to teach someone that what justifies us is the obedience of another human being in our place i'm just going to come out and say that you know I, i'm gonna i'm gonna come out and say that okay i'm not gonna use concepts that can possibly get near to that concept so the fact that paul goes to genesis 15 6 where faith is being credited as righteousness, you know, the Greek word logizumai there has got the, the, the background of the um, accounting background, like a ledger where you, you've got things to put into an account. Um, think, of, think of someone's account that they, ha they have faith and God looks into the account and he, it's like he recognizes there's righteousness there in the account. Um, that's just not the kind of imagery I would use if I wanted to make it crystal clear hmm. that faith has nothing to do with the righteousness that's justifying us. It's simply just the 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 open hand, you know. And I know some some Protestants might want to criticize that, but that whole open hand imagery is replete from Luther going forward. Yeah, it's even in some of the some of the pre-reformation theologians but but um what you know what paul i mean it's just it just seems so it just seems so odd that he would go to this first to try and argue um that you know faith is simply just a means of receiving an alien righteousness when the text is saying faith itself is being credited at i mean not even a footnote like what i mean i don't mean here that faith is righteousness what i mean here is like paul doesn't right. think he has right. to you know to clarify um so i think that uh genesis 15 6 um it, it we have to look at romans 4 1 because that's really that's really what's going to put our foot on the right path. Or as if you, if we're talking in navigational length, it's, it's sort of like if we're, we're, we're navigating through waters, what's going to set the compass in the right direction, whether we're going north, east, south, or west, is Romans 4 1, where he says, What has, what, what did Abraham our father find according to the flesh? I think that's so important. Mm. because everything it's a rhetorical question okay obviously paul uh, abraham did not find anything according to the flesh with god it's a rhetorical question so everything that paul's about to say beneath that are things that abraham received not according to the flesh yeah okay? but but that also means that what he's excluding are things that a human being might get according to the flesh which means within his natural human capacity. Now, to take a flint knife and circumcise somebody, that's that's within human capacity. Right. Let's face it. That's that's within human capacity. To show up at a house 
on the Feast of Booths or to um, attend certain, you know, Jewish ceremonial rituals. That's within capacity. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not I, I'm not actually an advocate of the new perspective that has like a rigid isolation to, you know, the external Jewish boundary markers here, the badge, you know, the the the, the badge markers. But what I am saying here is that what Paul's trying to exclude principally here is things that are within human capacity. Right. And so when he gets to Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, we don't need to really we don't need to jam this verse with anything. We just need to read it for what it says. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, faith has to be something beyond human capacity, and the righteousness he was credited with has to be beyond human capacity. That's all that, that that's all that needs to be understood here. Um and the the difference between the circumcision by human hands versus the circumcision not by human hands. Yeah, exactly. It, it, exactly. It, it's what John the Baptist said, you know, when he said that uh, you think you might be children of Abraham because you're 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 born in Israel, but God is able to raise up uh, children of Abraham from these stones. Okay, right. that. Um, so what John the Baptist is is a proto preacher of this doctrine of justification um, by grace and not by works. Um, so yeah, th this text here is interpreted like it, I look at the fathers, I look at some of the Old Testament Jewish commentary, um, Protestant commentaries on Genesis on the Genesis text itself, and um, you know Bill Arnold. Bill T. Arnold, I, I cite from Chrysostom, Ambrose, some of the more classical uh, fathers that the early Lutherans thought were on their side when it came to this preeminent text in Romans 4. Um, and yet, what do, you, what do we see in those commentaries? If you read my book, it, it's consistently something about faith being involved efficiently instrumentally in the attainment of this status that God is recognizing yeah. you know and and so that that's that's distinct from the Lutheran interpretation from the Calvinistic interpretation um, but it's interesting because you, you do some of the Lutheran apologists and you know the the, the reformers uh, continentally England the English reformers the the sweet you know um, uh, the Calvinistic reformers they would go to Ambrose, Hilary of Poitiers, Chrysostom, and where they say faith alone. And they do. They do say faith alone. Um, but look at how they're interpreting Genesis 15, 6. And that will tell you whether they land on the Reformed understanding of faith or this, a different one. You know, I don't want to say Catholic because, you know, a different one. Okay. And, yeah, I, I think what you said is right that faith itself is being credited as righteousness and that's it you know but then he goes on to say that justification is workless faith and works are being dichotomized you know it's they're not like somehow bundled up together you know so we still have to maintain the exclusion of works from what's going on in Genesis 15:6 and i think that's very simple abraham did not perform a good deed right then and there. He didn't offer anything on an altar. He didn't, you know, God gave him a promise and 
Abraham had the 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 what Paul says later in Romans four the the interior fortitude, right? He didn't consider Sarah's womb, which was dead. He didn't consider his own body, which was dead. He looked at the the probability of the circumstances, which was close to none. Right. He didn't choose to go with what human intelligence and our human flesh would have us do. He refused to go that way, and he trusted in God. That's right. it. He didn't. So is that is that an act of obedience? I and I bring this out in the book that um, for for Jewish people and for the New Testament era, believing in God is an act of obedience. Okay, we can't get a, we can't get around from that because unbelief <laughs> is a sin, right? And so belief has to at least be the foundation of the good life towards God. Right. Um, and, and, and so that's what I, I say in the book. It's the first step, right? But Abraham's belief here is not his first step. It's just a, a brand new promise and a brand new commitment to that promise through right. faith. And right. God looks at that and says, you know what? That's your righteousness, Abraham, because I'm going to retrospectively apply the blood of my son to you to completely blot out all of your iniquities and I can see that you're committed to my word. You're justified. And see, this is one of the problems with the reform guys is that they have to have a perfectly sinless life as the only way to make, to be righteousness. Anything less than that, it's condemned. It, well, I don't want to say it's condemned worthy, but um, anything less than that is simply insufficient. Yeah. You know, this comes out a lot, not so much in Calvin, because Calvin seems to almost think the forgiveness of sins would be sufficient for, for justification. But definitely the later Calvinistic thinkers, they would they were arguing that the forgiveness of sins would not get you into heaven. It mm. would only bring you to like a neutral point because you've only been, had your sins forgiven. You also need a perfectly sinless life vicariously lived in your account in mm. order for you to go to heaven. Again, these are concepts that are quite eisegetical in my opinion i don't think you can derive that from the text what you see in the text are things like you got a pharisee in the temple he's he thinks that he's righteous in the eyes of god because he's avoided all kinds of sins and then you got another guy who comes in completely aware of his sinfulness beats his chest and asks god for forgiveness obviously having regret and disdain and hatred for himself and 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 uh, Christ tells us that man went home justified. Well, what happened in that man? Are we supposed to think that he came there, repented, and got this forgiveness of sins? But then he also needed this this uh, imputation of righteousness. No, I think that God saw his repentance, which is obviously something he put in the man himself. Right. right? right. Um, he he blots out his sins. He's clearly coming to the temple because he believes in me. He believes in God. He's ready to start living a different life. That's it. He, he went home justified. Yeah. You know, um, that's less eisegetical than I think than the idea of importing this idea. No, it's got to be a full blown life um, of, of vicarious substitutionary obedience. Um, and I understand that it's not irrational. They get there through rational arguments. Right. I just think I just think it is eisegetical. 
Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, how do you get around, and, and I've wrestled with this in Romans 4 too, and I think one of the strongest uh, arguments for the Protestant position is the idea that this is not the initial justification of Abraham. This, this takes place after Abraham has already been walking with God and following God. So if Abraham is declared to be righteous here, and he is called the ungodly, how does that correspond with this idea that he's already been, quote unquote, walking with God? How, how would you respond to that? Yes. So it's definitely the case that this is not Abraham's initial justification. Um, I know that some Catholics have made that um, interpretation popular. Um, I've seen it used in debates. Um but I don't think it's successful because um, Abraham's well into his walk with God. And uh, uh, we know from the author to the Hebrews that he already exhibited both faith and obedience already in Genesis 12. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're going to stick to our soteriological systems, um, we already believe he was initially justified, you know, in Genesis 12. So Genesis 15 is not an initial justification, and yet at the same time, it's workless. His justification is workless. So the question is, how do you have a post-conversion justification that is workless? And I think it's very simple. You know, even, even a martyr at the end of his life, you know, renews his faith. And I say renew, I don't mean... Like he he just starts to believe, but he considers the promise of God. He reads it in scripture. He hears it in a homily um, or God comes to him personally, <laughs> like Abraham, whichever way he hears the promise and he gives his whole person to it. Mm. God looks at that and says, yeah, man, you are what I consider righteous because all your sins are forgiven through the cross of my son and you've given me what I need to change your life. And God can look at that and say, you, you, you've not done any good work, okay? I've given you a promise, and you've accepted it, okay? That's it. That's, you know, you you you, you didn't do an outward work, principally speaking, like, you know, the actual act of martyrdom will be the outward work, right? right. But, uh, you know, the thief, on, the, the, the thief on the cross, the good thief on the cross, obviously he died being content with his situation, yeah. um, but his faith at that moment is really what is it, that's really what made him righteous. Is is it was his faith? So he right. didn't do a whole life of good works. Um, so I think it could be at the beginning of your conversion, or it could be at the end of your life. God can single out your faith, the virtue of faith itself, and say that's what's beautiful right now to me, and that's why. I'm considering you accepted in my eyes. Um, but, you know, it, it, it still goes back to this issue that I bring out in the book, in the, in the book of Hebrews, where the author to the Hebrews, which, you know, I almost think that if, if it wasn't known that Hebrews was a book of the New Testament and it was like an early church, you know, it was like a, 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 a book written in like the second century or something, I have a feeling that Protestants might have a tough time Mm. with the book of hebrews but because it's in the canon it, it's it's been the source of all kinds of uh rough attempts at co coherence but mm -hmm. in, in the book of hebrews 
unbelief is a sin. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that, that must mean, because this goes back to what we're saying in Romans four, where Protestants like to say, Abraham is ungodly. It says, whoever does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So faith and ungodliness are what's, that's all Abraham has. He has ungodliness and faith. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Faith is not geared towards ungodliness. Okay. According to the New Testament, saving faith is an act of obedience. In a sense, it's got to be um, because if you lack it, you're not doing what the Lord wants. You know, this is why Paul says in Romans 1 that the whole end of the apostleship of Jesus is for the obedience of faith among all nations. Okay, Romans 6, Paul says, you were once a slave to sin, but you obeyed from the heart to that form of teaching which, to which you were delivered. So not even in Paul do you get the sense that like faith is such a it's such an easy peasy thing that you can do while you're so ungodly in order to highlight the alienness of the righteousness that justifies us. That's really not Pauline in, in thought. Right. So 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 what I what the scholastics have always said is that faith is not a meritorious work in this sense, but it is the first foundation to the justified life. Because on top of it, everything is built. And that doesn't mean initial justification. Right. Because I, as I brought out in the book, the the foundation of faith is not something that was there at the first step. And then after that, we just look back upon faith. No. Faith remains to be the sustaining rock on top of which the sanctified life is. So at any point in our conversion, at any point in our walk with God, God can look at the foundation and say, that's the righteousness. Right. Um, so, But that still goes back to what's inherent in us and not what's alien to us. So right. I, I, I still think a Catholic has a case in Romans 4. Obviously, Protestants have done some convincing work in it because it, it's almost like just from a, like a fresh reading it almost seems like yeah works are gone he's ungodly all he has is faith so faith has to be something completely and i, I forgive me but worthless in this transaction you know it's, it's got to right. be something that's just non-contributory just an empty hand an open hand for the gift so it almost appears like the whole framework of the reformed doctrine is is spelled out. But I think if you read closer to Romans 4, 17, 18, 19, 20, where Paul says that Abraham grew strong, okay, that that he had steps of faith and that he gave glory to God and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness, I think I, I just don't think Paul's thinking in alienistic terms. I think he's thinking in inherent terms. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I you, you pointed out in your book, too, you said um, that really for the Protestant interpretation to have its kind of full force, you would expect it to read something like Abraham did nothing and yeah. accounted to him as righteousness. And yet the fact that faith is mentioned seems to be that there's an emphasis on faith actually accomplishing something in this declaration of righteousness given by God. Yeah. And what's so ironic about that is the Catholic and Orthodox, and, and Protestant 
uh, understanding of God's grace and human agency, we can still say faith is something inherent that we're giving and is a gift from God itself. So I can still say nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. If we understand the dynamic of human agency as something built off grace itself. Um, And you could still say nothing in my hands I bring. Um, Because in one sense, it's all from God. Like Augustine said, God is the painter the, the the our good works are the canvas we're just the brush so in the end god's just rewarding himself you yeah. know um yeah. and and so that's that's always been the augustinian view it's been the, it, it got into the catholic view through uh you know the councils of orange the council of trent um so i think it's still embedded in the catholic view yeah and i i think that is so key because i think once you take away kind of this very shallow straw man of the Catholic Orthodox position that somehow it's faith alone in Protestantism and faith plus these works that you have to do and recognize that anything that we do, whether inherent or not, is a gift of God at work within us. Well, then, as Paul says, there's no room to boast in either case, whether or not you're holding faith alone or whether or not you're holding the Catholic position, both positions have nothing to boast in because it's a work from God. You got it. You got it. Wanna, that's that's, wanna... that's a great, great, great summary. And it's it's tough to see that point, but I think once you see it, it's it's you, you can really see. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Really beautiful. Because for me, I'll, I'll be totally honest. One of the struggles that I was having with with the idea of imputation was it seemed it seemed to um, limit the the effect of Christ's atoning death by saying that like that whole i the image of like the dung heap covered by snow that kind of idea mm-hmm. that somehow this doesn't actually have an effect in me in a sense that god sees me as righteous because of something he's done in me not just outside of me but in me i i really just struggled with that cuz to me it was like so am i going to stand and just hide behind christ when i stand before the judgment seat you know and just right. not let god look at my face cuz he still can't bear the sight of me or am i actually right. going to be righteous when he looks at me and i think what what this inherent righteousness does is it actually magnifies that the work of christ not only accomplishes forgiveness of sins but actually accomplishes this renovation of our inner man and changes us really truly changes us um amen there's a few things, just two more things I'd like to get to. Um, the first one is just talking briefly about um, th- this idea of increase in justification. What, what does that mean when a Catholic speaks of the increase? Because I think that's very foreign to Protestantism. And at that point, especially when you start using the word of merit and stuff, it starts to leave a bad taste in the Protestant yes. mind. Um, and so kind of clarifying what is meant by that. And then uh, the, I'll get to the last point after we talk about that briefly. Yes. Um, so the increase of justification um, is, uh, I think I bring out in the introduction of the book that um, Catholic theology distinguishes between the act of justification and the habit of justification, or or we could call it progressive justification. So the same thing that a Protestant would say, or rather similar to what a Protestant would say, where you have justification at the beginning of the Christian life, and then after that you have sanctific- the progressive sanctification. 
Um, we would say the same thing about the justification itself. Justification itself has that um, that uh, complexity to it. So it's the act of justification is is that baptismal regeneration. You know, you are you go you go from being a child of Adam to being a son of God in Christ. That involves, you know, obviously the the remission of sins, but also the interior renewal of the human person. Um, that act of justification, okay, there is no merit that you can provide to obtain that. That's a new creation. There's no human help that can that can assist. Um, it's just completely uh, a new new creation regeneration that's like the power of genesis you know god creates ex nihilo right a, when god recreates a human being that is just completely workless it has no merits no prior merits uh, even in view um but then you know so you have that act of justification but then after that you have the increase of justification or the progress of justification and that means that that seed of glory that you're given the seed of righteousness that you're given um needs to cooperate with the will okay and this increases our righteousness in the eyes of god okay and and the classical text is that to go you know it's not really uh pauline but the parable of the talents where you've got one person that was given one talent, another that was given five, and another that was given ten. I might have the numbers off. But the idea is that when the master let, uh, left them to themselves, they could not simply maintain what they were given. Mm-hmm. Because if it was just like all you need is the righteousness of Jesus, you could literally just maintain that, and it would be good for you at the beginning and the end of your life. Correct. You know, but but what's happening here is the guy who thought he could bury it and protect it as it is, and just leave it by itself because, you know, he was scared that he might lose it and the master was overbearing and, and something evil might happen. He thought he would just leave it and do nothing with it. Well, it's ironically, that's that's almost what reform theology would like to do, because the if you picture the talent and i don't say that they say the talent is the imputation of Christ. don't get me wrong right, I, right. I, i'm i'm thinking in my own terms here but if you get the righteousness of christ and let's say it's the talent reform theology wants to say that yeah that has to be kept alone you can't add anything to that okay because that's what's going to get you into heaven okay but that's not you know we're not saying that's what reform theology teaches or protestant teaches i'm just i'm thinking in my own terms there um, but what we do get from this parable is that what whatever Christ gives us, which is the grace of salvation, you know, um, the the the, the uh, fruit produ- fruit producing uh, influence in, that He in, puts into our hearts, um, if you leave it there as it is, you you actually fail the whole project. You know, mm-hmm. so the only way to be successful is to take that and increase it. You know, and and to and to and to produce more fruit. Now, yes, yes, yes. We have to balance this with the 
you know, the other parable of the workers that came at the beginning and the end, and they were all given the same thing at the end. So Christ is a very paradoxical teacher, okay? But we can't say, well, no, we just want one parable, and we don't want to look at what the other one has to say, okay? We have to interpret both of them in some way, even if it's paradoxical. And the Catholic theology has always said that this increase of justification is precisely that. We merit, we, we, we're meriting eternal life, which just means that God is working in us in order to obtain our final end. Yeah. Okay. And that's what Jesus says. I mean, Jesus, the teaching of Jesus is very clear about this. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, some old school Protestant commentaries, um, like the the parable of the wedding feast with the the, the garment, yeah. Sometimes they want to say that that's the righteousness of Jesus, you know, that you just have to maintain that garment. But that's not what Jesus is saying, and it's very clear in the surrounding context because he's talking about lawless deeds, those who practice lawlessness or who do not bear good fruit. You right. Know? So it, it's obvious that the wedding garment is is a an obedient fruit bearing life. And we even we even see kind of that paralleled in Revelation when John talks about the wedding garment and he's it's defined as the righteous deeds of the saints. Yes, too. yeah. And then paradoxically, um, earlier in Revelation, it says they had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right. So you've got this. You've got this. You know, it's both positive side and the in the negative side. Um, Paul gives us this uh, sense in Romans six through eight where the righteousness that justifies us that he talked about in Romans 117 Romans 321 um, Romans 521 traditional reformed exegesis Protestant exegesis what they see is at 521 and 61 in Romans there's this fundamental like shift to a dis a different distinct category a very, very rigid distinction, although they would say it's necessarily conjoined. Okay, right. we don't want to we don't want to straw man them and say that they they think that justifying righteousness and sanctifying righteousness are you know they, that they're somehow separated. No, they're conjoined. But but typical Protestant exegesis inserts this um, shift uh in 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 uh in what Paul means by dikaiosune despite the fact that the same word is used you know mm -hmm. and i i think that if you if you if you let the chapter divisions and verse numbers disappear yeah. um sune in Romans 5 bang 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 and then dikaiosune in Romans 6 there should be an overwhelming reason why we should have to dif completely give a different category to what the meaning is yeah. so and Romans 6 talks about the the obedient life um, that uh, we have as a result of grace that is progressive so that has to be increasing yes not Paul doesn't expect it to decrease in fact he does speak about it decreasing and he, he says there's threats and warnings for future damnation as a result of that you know, yeah. Romans Romans eight. He says, "If you, um, if for if you live according to the flesh, you will die." Yeah. Right. That's a truth for Christians. That's not just a truth for the hypothetical Christian. 
That's a truth for Christians. If you put to death the deeds of the body, that's the increase. How do you put the how do you put the, to death the deeds of the body all at the beginning of your conversion? Yeah. No, this is a progressive thing. Um, and then he says the 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 result of that is life, not rewards in life, but life itself. Yes, you see. And in Galatians, uh, Galatians four and five, you get this the most the the clearest cause and effect metaphor that you can possibly give sowing and reaping now if you christian sow to the flesh you will of the flesh reap everlasting corruption yeah that's that's not the garbage that's that's not the door stopper in heaven that's talking about hell okay but if you by the spirit um uh if you live according to the spirit sow according to the spirit by doing well you will of the spirit reap everlasting life okay um th it's important to understand there paul does not mean some sort of augmented degree of life right he's talking about life itself you know yeah so catholic theology has looked at this you know you could find this in pope leo the great fifth century um the, this is an increase of that seed of justice that we were given when we were regenerated, okay? And that's what we're going to give an account for when we uh, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says that in Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 2. All of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, who's going to judge the secrets of man on that on the on the day of judgment. Um, and Christians are not going to be there saying, well, here are my works in order to indicate this other real deal, the righteousness of Jesus, you know, no, the works themselves are going to be given a certain value by God's judgment. And um, Paul says, those who by patience, endurance, uh, seek good glory and, and righteousness, they will uh, enjoy eternal life. But those who did not, they, they, they will suffer eternal corruption. So that, that 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 inevitably gets us past this idea of an active translation from Adam to Christ. It's talking more about what's progressive in our life, all the way to our dying breath. Um, and yet, none of that is attributed to works. Okay, even when we pass the final judgment, it's not like we're going to get in there and you know thumbs under our overall straps, rocking back and forth in the rocking chair, looking down at everybody in hell. Ha ha ha. I got here. Well, yeah, justification was free. All right, fine. But I, I'll tell you what I got on you. I got my sanctification. Right. right, right. <laughs> it, it's not like that. No, the whole thing is going to be a God-glorifying impulse. We have nothing to, 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 to thank ourselves for. So, yeah, that's what I would say about the increase of justification. It's embedded into the teaching and theology of Jesus himself. Yeah. Um, but we also see it in the, in the classic Hebrew teaching that Paul continues in the, his letters. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I think it's really important too that in those, in those texts that warn, like if you sow to the flesh, you will, you will, you will die. The, the flip side of that is if you sow to the spirit by the spirit. Right. And so the idea is always that any good that we're doing is the grace of God enacted yeah. in our life. And so the idea of merit is not divorced from grace in any sense. Um, and I think that's a really, really important uh, key to maintain. Um, 
Yeah, yeah no, I know Protestants have a way of um, they have their system, okay, yes. which says, well, you know, yes, Paul says that, but really what it means is that there's an inevitability there um, for the regenerate. And then there's obviously for the non-regenerate, they've got that. It's not a hypothetical for them. It's a reality for them. Um, but again, it's it, you can maintain coherence at the cost of a lot of eisegesis. Yeah. And that's that's ultimately why I, I, I'm not Reformed or Protestant in my soteriology is because not that they can't um, co make coherence. You've yeah. got genius theologians in the Reformed world, Protestant world. I mean, smarter than I'll ever be, smarter. I mean, IQs of two, 200, I'm sure. Um, so they're able to build a nice system. Yeah. The question is, are we losing sight of whether that's alien or intrinsic to Paul's intention? You know, right. And that's where I think um, I had to change my mind. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to briefly touch on, and we'll wrap up with this, is one of the things that I've been wrestling with in, in studying this, this subject is where, where do Protestants and Catholics and the Orthodox, for that matter, where do we find some sort of common ground? How can we, how can we better come together on this, on this subject? And one of the things that I've been tossing around in my head is this idea of union with Christ as being something that I see central in a lot of the Reformed writings. Calvin, it's very central. Um, and I also see this uh, taking a large role in the Orthodox idea of theosis and Catholic understanding of participation in, in, in Christ. And so I wonder, um, in your opinion, this is more just me now talking uh, less about the book, but just asking, asking somebody else. In your opinion, how, do, how does union with Christ, do you think that that could potentially be a way in which we can sort of bridge some of the gaps that might otherwise not be bridged. Because in my mind, union with Christ is this objective reality that does accomplish, a Reformed theologian would admit too, that it accomplishes a true ontic change within us. And so in some senses, looking at union with Christ as being, in some sense, a formal cause of justification, I think could potentially resolve some of the tension. I don't know what you think. Absolutely. I actually think you see hints of this in Jonathan Edwards, but yeah. um, some people have said that, you know, there's, there's actually been some Edwards uh, scholars that have said that he taught um, ontic change is, is, is intrinsic to justification. You have others that really don't want that to be true, right. but um, I would say you're, you're right. Um, and I think that this was really well uh, captured by, Gerhardus Voss and yes. uh, Herman Ritterboss, uh, Dutch reform guy. I quote him in the book, but you know, Ger Voss, Ritterboss, and then this this is a trajectory that was picked up by another um, scholar named George Eldon Ladd, who wrote uh, a book on on the kingdom and eschatology, nope. um, and then it gets picked up. It was picked up in the late nineties, early two thousands by Richard B. Gaffin at Westminster, California, and he started he he published some books basically putting eschatology, union with Christ and justification all together. Yeah. And you you see this now gaining popularity again in the reformed world. I think it's essential, you know, if, if we all believe that the major structure that we're walking into is 
union with Christ, then it's just a matter of how much we want to fight about which room in the hotel. So picture picture union with Christ as like a hotel. Yeah. And we all believe we're going into this hotel, but we have this, you know, we're, we're bickering about, well, that room is, is adoption and that room here is justification, has nothing to do, it's locked away from this other room. And it's like, well, guys, look up. You know, we're in the same longitude latitude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we're in the same hotel. You know, we, yeah, we might configure things a little differently. I know that the Reformed are going to want to, you know, emphasize that there is a significance to this issue because they, they really want to nail down that we are safe at the judgment yeah. of God. Yeah. And I, I commend them for that. Absolutely. Because sometimes they look at Catholics like, Catholics, what is wrong with you? How can you throw you're passing the examination of God's judgment into your own hands. You know, yeah. it just looks absurd, you know. Right. Um, so I understand their barrier, and, and part of me even sympathizes with it because I'm living with my own self, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I just can't help but notice that Paul does incorporate the, the new creation and the works that come out of the new creation yes. in us. Um, he incorporates this into what is pushing us to glory one day. And uh, I, I, obviously I might like to agree with the reform because, you know, then I could say, well, it's not my works. Um, although even Calvin, you know, in Geneva, there was a whole problem with assurance of salvation in, uh, yeah. in, in, in Geneva um, because of, yeah, he said that salvation was completely workless. But in order to know that you were saved and elect, your propeller had to be turning according to what the magistrates were saying is holiness. And it was just, you know, crazy. Right. So you're not always going to have assurance as a Calvinist. Not always. Sometimes you do. I remember when I used to grow in despair, they would say, well, you got to read Martin Lloyd-Jones's book on spiritual depression. And then after you read that for a few months, you're going to get to a point where you're going to feel like, you're, you you have this Christian liberty. Well, then you got to read Matthew Mead, the almost Christian, to balance it out because then he makes you feel like you're not saved. And then you go back and forth from Martin Lloyd Jones to Matthew Mead and Martin. <laughs> um, yeah. So the Catholic the Catholic does have uh, similarities in that there's sometimes there is sometimes anxiety, yeah, and we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Um, and we, while I would want to have the comfort of knowing I'm always safe, no matter what, like, like I have life insurance for my family, it's all paid for. I don't have to worry about it. It's all there. Paul's exhortations don't always come like that. You know, right. It, right. It, it, there is some conditions. Yeah. And I think one of the ways that in my head, working through some of this in the past and kind of coming to. I would say probably a, a pretty Catholic soteriology myself is recognizing first and foremost that grace is essential in this whole conversation. I keep stressing that, but I think it's so important to remember that it's really not our works. It's it's the work of God in us. And secondly, when we do fall, God's grace is so powerful that he's actually provided us with a sacramental system that can give us an assurance of, of, of being brought back into his fold brought in from our sin. And so there's a beauty to the idea that I think it was Jimmy Aiken who I was reading in his book. He said, 
um, that the, the Catholic system is very simple. Repent, or, or repent, believe, be baptized. Repent, believe, and confess. That's it. You know? That's it. And That's I think it. that when you start to look at it that way, you you start to recognize that that this is this is really it's a system of grace fundamentally. Yeah. yeah, and and you see that in Paul too, with like the the uh, the man of the the person who sinned in First Corinthians five. It looks like Second Corinthians two and three. He's talking about restoring the man, yeah. um, which uh, you know he he deals with that gently. You know, so yeah, it's all about it's all grace. You know, everything. Everything is grace, um, and uh, I think once we understand that grace and human agency, like the way you described it, I think that'll definitely help both sides uh, to better understand each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate the conversation, and um, I appreciate the work you've done in this book, um, and I think a lot of people will be edified by by the dialogue here. Thank you so much, uh, Jonah. It's a blast. It was uh, it was very uh, edifying to be here. I, I like the way you've explained things, and and I appreciate you reading the book. Absolutely. Um, do you have anything else you wanted to just leave people with? Uh, especially, my channel is the majority are Protestants, Reformed Protestants, and so um, them listening in. Is there anything you would like to leave them leave them with? Yeah, I just you know would say you know I understand that uh, you know. We did not cover every shadow um, no. in this talk. I know that there's a lot um, of, but what about this? And but what about that? Um, but, uh, you know, I would ask, you know, just uh, give my book a shot. You know, um, it's only 149, 150 pages. Yeah. And um, just give it a thought. If you've given it a thought and you disagree with it, you know what? Um, I'd be proud of you either way if you agreed or disagreed, um, as long as you gave it some effort to think about, that's all I'm really trying to do with this book. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I think that, uh, charity and doing unto others as you would have done unto yourself is the supreme rule in this regard. Um, so just understand, I'm not, uh, trying to, uh, I'm not trying to get you converted. In other words, I really want to, uh, have a discussion on this and see if we can come to a better understanding in Paul's letter uh, yeah. to to Romans. So, um, yeah, any criticism that you guys have, if if you want to put it in the comments, any questions, um, if you want to reach me, uh, you could email me at ericibarra2010 at gmail.com. Uh, I take questions regularly, or you can find me on Facebook. And, yeah, that's that's basically it. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. I'll have the book linked down below as well as the YouTube channel, website, so that people can check out your work. Um, but it's Thank been a you. pleasure, brother. I really do appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure's all mine. Thank you again.